One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from TIFO Football, and Tony Hodson from the Coach's Voice platform. There used to be a football club at Old Trafford. Now it's a profit centre for a global, multifaceted business. United have no overarching strategy, except for making money for their absentee owners. They've no discernible playing style no recruitment policy worthy of the name, and of course, no managerial succession plan. Michael Carrick, an interim interim manager, will nominally be in charge for the Champions League tie in Villarreal on Tuesday night. Maurizio Pochettino will be in Manchester that evening for PSG's return game against City. The strongest suggestion so far is that he fancies the United job and that the attraction is mutual. Seb, is he best equipped to sort out this mess? No, I, I, I don't think so. But then I don't think there is a coach who is. I think that the solution at Old Trafford lies in the structure above the head coach because I think we're seeing it now. I think we've seen it. I think we're seeing it in the goings on the last couple of days. There's a real absence of football expertise, football intelligence, football IQ, whatever you want to call it. And for someone like Pochettino, I'm sure that in theory he likes the idea of managing a club like Manchester United. We know that uh, obviously Alex Ferguson was a huge fan of his. They were pitched having lunch together when he was still Tottenham manager. But at the moment, would you would you swap what he has at Paris Saint-Germain for the structure and the system at Manchester United. Forget the allure of the club, forget what the club stands for. Look at the here and now, look at the composition of the playing staff, the demographics of it, the mixed motivations and ambitions within that playing group. It's not such a great job right now. Not to say it won't be again, but for someone like Pochettino, I suppose the one temptation will be that I I think his, his family is still based in England. That would obviously motivate him to return from France, but it's not the right time. I think this is a situation where you want to be the next guy to manage Manchester United. And it feels like we've been saying that for now for eight years, but I still think it's true. Yeah, I suppose you know, when you look at United as, a, as an institution, it has so many different problems, you know, probably going back to the, you know, the same source. But we'll talk about that a little bit later, Tony. Just, just look at individuals if we could. You know, when we're in this sort of whispers and moans phase of a of an appointment process, aren't we? At the moment, you've got supposedly Jorge Mendes pushing Yulan Lopetegui, Eric 
Ten Hag has apparently said he'd be interested at the end of the season. Ronaldo wants Luis Enrique. Well, let's not bother about a World Cup, chaps. They're longer-term choices. You work in the, in the coaching market, if you like, Tony. If you're going to make that decision, who would you choose? Well, we've been here before, Mike, haven't we? And it feels like yet again we're talking. I bring up Ralph Ragnick when we talk about this kind of this kind of topic, and I think Seb's already alluded to the problem with the structure of the club. You've already alluded to it as well. I don't think it really matters at the moment who the coach is because they're faced with exactly the same problems. So, personally, I'd be looking at somebody to come in and, and take absolute control of the club higher up from a director of football or sporting director or whatever you want to call it role. We know the importance of that role. You know, when Michael Edwards announced he was leaving Liverpool a couple of weeks ago, there was a huge hullabaloo because everyone knows what an important role he's played in Liverpool's development in the past you know, decade or so. Rangnick, from what I know, would be open to, to, to that kind of role. And then, you know, what he's had at Red Bull is a huge amount of money to go and do what he wanted and, and develop something. Now at United, it seems that money is no object. We know, we all know what the Glazers are. We all know how they operate. We all know how they love to throw money at it occasionally. Will they throw the amount of money at it that someone like Ragnick will demand to then bring in his kind of people? I don't know. Time will tell on that. But I think, I think you know, there's rumours about Zidane. He's apparently not interested. That doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I agree with Seb on Pochettino. I think you'd, he'd just be swapping one set of problems for another if you left PSG for Man United. Lopetegui, uh, I know that Lopetegui would be open to a move to the UK. I think at some point, so that 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 has interest, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure quite what the fans would make of that. And then there's the players. <laughs> I mean, if 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 Ronaldo wants Luis Enrique and doesn't get Luis Enrique, does that does that cause problems? What does Bruno Fernandes think? What does I mean, there are just so many problems there. It would be almost entertaining if it wasn't quite tragic at the same time. Mm. Well, it does you know, highlight the issue, doesn't it? One of the issues, Seb, the players here need to be accountable. It's all very well Bruno Fernandez, you know, gesturing at his teammates and saying, well, we're to blame when, when Oliver Garner Solskjaer was being booed. But they need to be accountable for their actions or lack of actions, don't they? Yeah, I think so. I think you can divide, from a playing perspective, I think you could probably divide the issues at May United straight down the middle and look at the obvious technical coaching problems that exist there, which in my mind are being exacerbated by some pretty, pretty ordinary individual performances. And the thing is, is that I, I remember watching the game on Saturday and seeing the chance that Fernandez missed where he hooked a shot over the bar. And obviously, naturally, the television cameras zeroed in on Ronaldo's petulant, childish response. And the thing is, he's been doing that all his career. That is not a symptom of the current situation. That is who he is. That was how he was responding when teammates in one of Real Madrid's European Cup winning sides were missing chances. Ask Gareth Bale, ask Karen Benzema. He does that. The problem is, is that when things are going wrong and when, when this kind of context exists, I feel like that's a very damaging thing. Like if you're, if you're a, you know, when, when Ronaldo first turned up at Manchester United, we spent a lot of time talking about, well, you, you know, he only eats uh, quinoa or whatever, you know, and this is a great example to be setting for, for young players. I think the opposite is true in this instance. Like you, you need, at times of crisis, and this is a crisis, you need your senior players, you need your, your talisman to set an example. And in this particular instance, United don't quite have the right set of talisman for that. So it's it's really really tricky. I I also I don't want to I don't want to individualize too much of the criticism, but 
some of the mistakes that you see from this United team are extraordinary. I, Harry Maguire's two yellow cards are, I mean, I don't even know how to defend that. I don't, you know, buy into, I, th- I think Maguire has regressed since the European Championship, absolutely. But some of the, the criticism has probably been over the top, but very hard to defend either of those yellow cards. Like, first well, of all, that, that, from the that's, a that's a travesty of leadership, said, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I, I would say so, sitting on my side of the fence, Mike, but I've never been in his position. I don't know what it is to be a captain of a club that's under that kind of glare and is performing this badly and is being criticised as fiercely as they are. That being said, I think you have to... In that situation, I, I think you have to not give people the opportunity to criticise you more. And if you're Henry Guay and you're making one of those two tackles, particularly the second, in which he looks like... It's very half-hearted. It's kind of lazy, if we're if we're, if we're being honest, the, the tackle. And I'm not suggesting that that means he's a lazy player. I just mean that that is what people will will whip you with. If you if you if you if you play like that, if you make that kind of mistake in this situation, you've got a captain's armband on, you're going to get battered by everybody, media, fans, everybody. And it's it's as if the gravity of the situation at Man United eludes some of these players, and that they are. It's kind of a disingenuous attitude towards what people look at when teams are underperforming. You know, what people criticise, what people point their finger at. And there's just too many things to... Uh, I know I've picked out Harry McGuire a little bit, but God, you, you you could pick any one of those players, really. Probably with the exception of David De Gea, who I thought was um, had a very, very good game on Saturday. And I, I imagine that. Imagine that. Man United getting battered at Watford and after saying that David De Gea was excellent. Well, it's true. You know, we accept, Tony, that... Ronaldo was, was always going to be the ultimate distraction in all this. Uh, I thought De Gea's reaction, you know, the, basically when he was saying, look, we don't know what we're doing, that was the most telling. There's a there's a pretty proud pro, a world-class goalkeeper who's had enough. I think there's one of the words that, that comes up most when I talk to coaches is clarity, getting across your message. And I think I would... I would pick out in, in the last 20 years, in the Premier League era, probably, no, less than the last 20 years, I could think of maybe the Chelsea era of Czech, Terry, Lampard, Drogba, and possibly the, the, the Real Madrid team that just kept winning Champions League. They looked like teams that managed themselves on the pitch to a point. But then they'd all been playing together for so long and knew, knew the ropes that it almost became second nature. If you look at every other team that are champions, there's a, there's a, there's a definite clarity. Everyone knows their roles with the ball, without the ball. We had uh, the coach's voice. We had our first conference last uh, in September, and Ralph Ragnick spoke at that and talked about the development of the, the, the Gegen Press and the development of Liverpool under Klopp, and made the point that when Salah, Firmino, and Mane were younger players, they weren't natural pressers. They didn't they didn't do what they do now for Liverpool. The clarity of message that they've been delivered in, over the course of their careers made them what they are. You look at the best teams in the Premier League, you look at the best coaches and obviously the top, we talked about top four last time I was on, that's not doesn't exist anymore, does it? You look yeah. at Guardiola, Klopp and Tuchel and the clarity of message that those guys deliver to their players so that when the players go on the pitch, they know exactly what they're doing. They don't panic. If things go wrong, they don't, they don't lose shape, they don't lose focus, they don't lose discipline. They just carry on and they have confidence and faith the result will turn around. We've seen United turn around some remarkable results in in the Solskjaer era, but that's more by chance than design, it seems. And I think you look at these players on the pitch, when things aren't going right, they don't they don't know. And De Gea said it, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing with the ball. They don't know what they're doing without the ball. Are they pressing? Are they not pressing? Another thing Ragnick says, well, there's no no such thing as a little bit of pressing. It's like being a little bit pregnant. You either are or you aren't. (laughs) And and this is what United have. United, they are none of the above. (laughs) 
you know, and they've been at their most effective under Solskjaer when they've counterattacked and they've been clearly a team that sat back, soaked up pressure and used pace on the counterattack. They don't seem to want to do that now because that's not what United should be. Well, if it's how they get the results, that's what exactly what they should be. So that's, that's the first, a new coach, that is the first job they will have to do. They'll have to bring in, come in, bring a clear message to the players. This is how we're going to play. This is how, that's going to take time. It's also going to take buying from the players. I, I'm, I'm the same. So I, I don't believe that Harry Maguire is a lazy footballer. I just think he's having a terrible time and every mistake is being completely exposed for almost every player there. So, but that, yeah, that clarity of message is surely the first thing that a new coach or director of football will have to bring to that set of players and hopefully then they, things will improve for them. Guys, can I, can I quite raise what, what, an issue that's confused me over the weekend? So from what I know of, of Solskjaer's coaching approach, he's really more of an overseer than a, a guy who sets out the cones on the training pitch. And I think one of the most common words used to describe Man United over the last couple of months is undercoached. And so what Man United have done this weekend is sack their overseer and kept their entire coaching staff coaching staff who are underperforming and who are not able to institute all these little facets of the game which may United are lacking it it eludes me as a as a kind of I, I don't understand that what's what's being aimed at there it feels like it's also kind of typical of where may United are like you there's a problem and they want to fix it but they don't really know what the problem is and they don't know how to fix it it's just the it's muddled thinking and maybe because they wanted a coaching staff the Villarreal game fair enough if that's the case but it doesn't seem that way doesn't seem that way. It's uh, very, very strange. Yeah, well, the confusion does seem to be typified, Tony, by by Michael Carrick being that interim interim manager, you know, the caretaker who's holding the fort until someone turns up, who's then going to hold the fort until someone else turns up. He's He's been thrown into a key Champions League game in Spain, and that's got to be on, ominous because Villarreal is probably the club which has highlighted... United's issues consistently. Yeah, I totally agree. You don't want to mess with them. I mean, the Europa League final last season was a remarkable, a remarkable game in lots of ways. And I think that clarity that I referred to earlier was shown in the team selection, where United seemed to abandon the, the shape or the players or the format that they had going to get there to try and get fit all their best players in to beat a supposedly inferior team, and they and they got caught out in the penalty shootout that seemingly is still going, possibly. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, they could they could come a cropper. It wouldn't surprise me at all if they did. And, and Michael Carrick is a. I feel a bit for him. He's he's. We, we talk about this before when it comes to coaching. He's he's not that experienced in terms of coaching. He's been doing it for a few years now. But if you look at some of these guys at the top, they've been doing it for fifteen. They're still quite young, but they've been coaching for fifteen, twenty years. Carrick was still playing well into his thirties. I don't know exactly when his coaching started, but in terms of a top-level coach, he's relatively inexperienced. Kieran McKenna has an awful lot of experience coaching, but but again, not at this level. And Mike Phelan seems to have been there forever, but quite what his coaching you know levels are, I, I wouldn't know. It does no, I seem think he's that... left. I think he's left the club, anyways. Need my... oh, has he? I think so. I think so. Yeah, I'm, I'll stand to be corrected on that. But guys, doesn't this doesn't this describe what we're what we're alluding to? Like no one knows. No one, no one knows. This is sort of the word that Tony used right at the beginning. Clarity. It's lack of clarity. Like, who is on the coaching staff? Who's in charge of this? Who's doing what? Like, and, and for how long are they doing it? it, it it's, if I was a Man United fan, like, I would feel kind of bad, badly let down by sort of the messaging around this too. Like, there was a little bit too much effort in presenting kind of the Oligon and exit interview, something I've never seen before. I don't have a problem with that. I thought it was quite nicely done. But... 
a little too much effort on the superficial stuff, not quite enough on the stuff that actually matters. And that feels like May United down to a T, I'm afraid. Yeah, on that exit interview, you know, perhaps I'm being too cynical here, but I hated it. I just hated it because <laughs> it was it did smack of, you know, corporate expedience. And I'm not decrying the human story behind it. And, you know, the the story was that Ollie wanted to do it, which is great. And he's you know, the one thing that has been consistent in all this is is that there's admiration for him as an individual, as a human being. But football hard game judged on results. Now, if you look at Pochettino, we go back to Pochettino, Tony, if we could. In essence, he's admitted that he's got to win the Champions League this season. You know, I think he said, if we don't, I think I've failed. Is he going to do that with PSG? I mean, who knows? That My guess would be no. Again, it just doesn't feel like quite the right fit. And PSG seems to have such an obsession with the Champions League. It just doesn't... I mean, we we know the obsession that Pep Guardiola has with the Champions League, and that seems to have cost him a few times in the in the last few years with Manchester City. This kind of overthinking it and this overwhelming desire to win it. PSG as a club seem to care about nothing else. I, I just can't. I mean, I I I, I'm, I wouldn't be happy to be wrong because I obviously want Liverpool to win it, but I, I you know, I, I wouldn't mind PSG winning it. I'd much rather they win it with Pochettino in charge than with them with a few others that we could name, but. Um, there's nothing to suggest in what we've seen from them this season that they're a team about to win the Champions League, as the said might disagree, but no, I guess it No, does. I completely agree. <laughs> completely agree. Completely agree. I mean, I think also if you look around European football, I don't see Juventus as a contender this year. I think they're well below what they should be. I think I know Bayern Munich lost on Friday night, but I take Bayern Munich over PSG any day of the week with the strength of like that midfield and that forward line. I mean, and, and Nagelsmann... Recent loss aside, Nagelsmann has them playing really, really well. And players like Leroy Sané, have, he's definitely refound himself this season. Much stronger side. I think Liverpool are a better team. I think Manchester City are a better team. I think Chelsea are a better team. I, I don't, I wouldn't, I would, I'd be surprised if, to see Paris Saint-Germain in the semi-finals, actually. I think it's a, I think they've got considerably worse over the summer, which I think, you know, if you're being cynical, you could probably see coming. But it's just, it's the wrong kind of transfer window. You know, just because you can sign players doesn't necessarily mean that you should. And I, it's a, it's a funny thing because uh, like the rest of the world, when, when the season began, I was curious. I, I'm pretty cynical about what PSG are and what they represent in this landscape. But at the same time, a lot of very good players in the same place. They bore me. They bore me to tears. They're just, they're not, they're not particularly good. They are a, they're far less than some of their parts. And also I've always thought that Mauricio Pochettino is fundamentally the wrong kind of coach for that group of players. He is a builder. He's someone that, He's someone that's at his best when he inspires a, it's almost like a, a cultish form of devotion. He is someone who develops players really, and I don't just mean in the youth sense, but I mean, can repurpose them and put them in different positions. He can, you know, Eric Dyer, somebody, or Musa Sissoko, another person, and, and that kind of stuff. And that's not Paris Saint-Germain. And um, I wish him well. I've got a lot of time for Maurizio, obviously, but I, there's nothing about that which is convincing to me, really. The strange thing about it with PSG, it's almost like, I'm not saying anything people don't already know now, but it's kind of like a, a new Galacticos. And it's like, well, that project didn't really go well the first time round, And football's moved on a lot since Real Madrid were doing it 20 years ago. And all the best teams that, that Seb's referred to there, if you think about the top three in England and Bayern Munich, they're all, they're all teams that are being built you know, by coaches who are forward thinking. Nagelsmann's only just in at Bayern, but everyone knows what a great coach he is and what, what he represents. Pochettino would love to be in charge of one of those four clubs. 
he might have his own preferences, but he would fit into any of those clubs right now in the way he does things. And to go to PSG, just again, it's, I'm just saying what Seb's already said, but it just doesn't feel the right fit, which is why going to Man United doesn't, at the moment, doesn't really feel the right fit. He'd just be confronted with the same, you know, chuck out Messi and put in Ronaldo. It's just, it's the same stuff. I'm simplifying it, but I think it's probably fair enough. Mm. Yeah, I, I do think, you know, there are direct, it's not a direct comparison, but you know there are hints of United superficiality in the way that PSG are approaching all this. What do you make of City, Seb? You know there was one sublime moment. You know the Cancelo pass for Sterling's goal was just ridiculous. Sometimes this is going to sound a bit strange. Are they almost sometimes too good for their own good? You know there's a there's a there's a sense of inevitability when they're playing matches at the moment. No, I, I, I think that's fair. And I, I think that kind of attitude around them has been around for quite a long time. Like, I, they inspire something very neutral in me when I watch their football. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's a result of nothing more than me being spoiled because we've, we've come to accept a, like a level of excellence from them, from Guardiola's city, and also some of these players. Like, that Cancelo ball is just outrageous. Also, it, it's so good that no one really talks about the, the Raheem Sterling finish. I mean, it's a great, great finish, great take from a player that most people don't associate with that kind of composure in front of goal. And I, I also think there's kind of, there's interesting things going on around that, that City team, like seeing Phil Foden, the position he was used in yesterday against Everton. But it's like, you feel like, almost it's not really worth paying attention to Manchester City until you get to about April because you know that they'll be competing for something. They'll be competing for everything come April. And then when you do arrive at that point, I know we've already touched on this, when you do arrive at that point, the, the narrative tends to be stolen by, oh, Pep Guardiola has reinvented the wheel for this crucial Champions League semi-final <laughs> second leg or something like that. And it's, it's on the one hand, it happens and it's fair because he has that reputation for reason. In a sense, it's deeply unfair because it kind of surpasses and it, it kind of puts in the shade everything that they've achieved up until that point and all the excellent football they've played. And that can sell it a sterling pass. That's another moment lost because Everton, goodness, I don't know where Everton are going as a, as a, as a football team, but it just feels like a sort of one of those, just a waypoint in the season. Yeah, that we've almost become desensitised to, I suppose is the right word, Mike. Mm. No Kevin De Bruyne because of COVID. That almost sums up a bit of a stop-start season for him, doesn't it, Tone? Yeah, and he's 30 now, isn't he? I was kind of I was caught up on him quite a bit. And so, that makes I mean, me feel old. Yeah, yeah I, I completely... Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm still pretty certain he's a young up-and-coming kid who has an amazing <laughs> talent. But no, and I think we... And, I, you know, that's the kind of... That's the kind of age now. There are, there are certain players who just keep going and there are certain players... That he's, he's, had a, he's had a few injuries and he hasn't looked as good this season when he has played. COVID just will just... I mean... Maybe it'll give him a chance to rest up a bit, assuming that he's he's not suffering with it too badly, and 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 he'll come again. And I think there's been, I think one thing that Pep is always thinking about is Seb's referred to kind of the end of the season, whether whatever the, the kind of reimagining of positions or players is, he's always thinking about freshness, and he hasn't always made selections that that have made sense at times. I think back to the putting out the first team against Brighton in the in the FA Cup semi, and then putting out what seemed the reserves against Spurs in the first leg of the Champions League, which just seemed weird even now. But maybe 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 that'll maybe that'll help De Bruyne. But there is an element of City beginning to develop into a team that can operate without him, which is definitely a positive for them. You wouldn't always have said that in the past couple of seasons. And I think Seb's right. I actually think, funny enough, I think in a different way, I think Chelsea are starting to approach that that same stage at Man City, where they're so strong and they have so few frailties. Tuchel is just such a good coach that there are just games that they just win. 
And obviously there are games where it doesn't quite go to plan. Burnley, for example, last week for Chelsea and obviously Man City at home to Palace. But, um, you know, you, as a Liverpool fan, one of the great things about watching Liverpool is there's still that sense of the unknown. You still have those absolutely chaotic games, thinking about Brentford. Brighton was a bit chaotic. You know, we still have, Liverpool still have frailties in areas that make them much more fun to watch. At the moment, neither City, because their defence is now so much better than it was, and Chelsea, because Tuchel is just a really, really good coach, both look more like machines. And they're great to watch at times, particularly, I mean, that Cancelo pass, I mean, he is one hell of a player. If there's one thing, he's not, it's a fullback. He's, he, he, it's just, it's just, I mean, he's like Pep's dream, isn't he? But he could do that once a game and City could win, beat teams 1-0. That's just where they are. And you, and Seb's right, you almost become desensitised to the absolute quality we're seeing. But those two teams are the best two teams in Europe at the moment for me. With Chelsea, you know, three points clear at the top of the Premier League and <laughs> just a nice little warm-up for the uh, game against Manchester United next weekend. They you know, realistically need a point to confirm the place in, in uh, the last 16 in the Champions League. They've got Juventus at the bridge on Tuesday who are already qualified pretty nicely set up for them isn't it i'd say so mike i also feel like there's something quite ominous about chelsea their their progress is quite quiet it reminds me a little bit of the early Mourinho years when they would just tick through the season and beat teams with a kind of mechanical efficiency they're more attractive than that team was but i'm also impressed by i know it's a all things are relative and you know one club's misfortune is is, a, is another's benefit but i they they lost Romelu Lukaku, who, given how much they spent on him at the beginning of the season, a lot of their attacking play would have been based around, and Tuchel would have plotted his offensive strategy through Lukaku. They've lost him, and they haven't really missed a step. It's been very very impressive. Leicester, Leicester's probably another conversation, but I thought Chelsea were terribly impressive, and and actually the caliber of their performance was kind of lost in in the kind of conversation about Brendan Rodgers, which is starting to change in tone a little bit, deservedly so probably. But if you look also, Lukaku's gone, but you look at the contributions from elsewhere, he's got Ziyech performing quite nicely, coming in a kind of sort of relief role. Pulisic had a, you know, a good cameo, really. And N'Golo Kante is, I mean, if it, it, it feels difficult to try and find something which hasn't been said about him before, but I don't think I've ever seen him do that. I've seen him carry the ball out to the edge of the box, but then it's it, when he's done it in the past, you know, sometimes he's kind of scuffed to finish in. I remember that goal he scored against Manchester United a couple of years ago. I don't think I've ever seen him finish with that kind of composure with his left foot. <laughs> so he's added another layer to N'Golo Kante. So well done, Thomas Tuchel, because that's pretty impressive. And yeah, I just, I, I think it's all looking very, very healthy there. I don't think they'll have any problems against Juventus at all. Mm. It's, it isn't, there's a mindset there, which I find quite intriguing. You know, someone like Callan Hudson-Odoi, for instance, he wouldn't accept second best in his eyes, i.e. playing for the England under-21s. Frankly, I've, I've been waiting for him to leave the club for about a, a year or so, but he's still there and he, he still wants to be part of it, which I find admirable. Young players there are getting the chance to blossom, aren't they? You know, look, look at Rhys James, for instance. Yeah, and I think I think that's one thing that the guys at Chelsea would 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 credit Frank Lampard with doing obviously he was his hands were behind his back in terms of the lack of transfers he was able to make in that first season but the way the academy is structured and you know it's structured to bring through lots of players into first teams wherever not necessarily at Chelsea but actually there's a small set of players there who have broken through and they're absolutely central to everything that Tuchel wants to do it would seem 
I mean, Reese James, I was thinking, <laughs> I was looking back at Antonio Conte when he won the league with them. And his wing-backs were Marcus Alonso, who's still there, of course, and, and still can't defend. And, and um, Victor Moses, who Conte seemed to completely re, re, reconfigure as a player. But, I mean, neither of those two would be in the same parish as the way Chilwell and Reese James are playing at the moment. It just seems like this is a such a strong, powerful team. And you're right, like Hudson Adoy, I'm the same as you. Like, I think I've said this before on here, that the word from within the club was that he's a really talented player who probably wasn't going to make it there. But he might end the season with 25, 30 appearances across all tournaments, across all competitions. And in the end, if that's what he wants to do, and that's, we, you know, we saw that with kind of Joe Cole back in the, in the Mourinho era, didn't we, where these players weren't playing every game, but were a central part, you know, made to feel valued by the coaching staff, happy there, you know, like, likes where he lives, like, you know, gets on with the fans. So it just seems like if he wants to stay there, stay there. But I, I'm with someone. <laughs> Kante's called at the weekend. It's just like, well, how can they get any better? Oh, oh like that. There's, yeah, yeah. It's funny though, like the Leicester thing, I remember after admiring the goal, you just wonder like, how many times can Leicester make the same kind of mistakes in the same game? Like the, the Rudiger header is ridiculous. I mean, Rudiger scored a, a very, very fine header from a corner there at the King Power a couple of years ago. And yet you just think of all the players that you would leave in that position and not, I, I don't get it. It's like it's, it just seems to be a real disconnect between the coaching and the playing staff there. I don't I don't know why. Is it more than a blip, Seb? Yeah, I think so. I think so because I was speaking to a, a Leicester fan who I work with over the weekend, and we were we were chatting about the form, and uh, one of the things he was talking about was just it's the same mistakes. Like they don't always result in goals, but the amount of times that they get countered off their own counters, you know, without like when you, when you counterattack. Obviously, part of it is putting the men forward so that you can break in space. Another is ensuring that you've got the security behind you that, you know, if you get counterpressed yourself, then you don't expose yourself going back the other way. Leicester don't seem to... I mean, I know Brennan Rodgers is a good enough coach to understand that. It's just that it's not being instituted properly. Also, as good as N'Golo Kante's run was, like, how often this season, when you think about it, have you seen players trundle through the middle of Leicester's midfield with the ball? It's extraordinary, and, and particularly so with the kind of the caliber of player that they have in that position. Indeedy, Samari off the bench. They got Madison there. I know he's an attacking player, but you know, all these players that can contribute in central areas, and yet they seem very weak. And the set piece problem is, yeah, I I know they lost for Fana in, in preseason, and, and he's a he's an excellent player, but you've also got a good enough group of defenders to not concede the kind of goals that they are, and it's it's worrying because it's um. Well, it, it's it's almost December. It's not August and it's not September. We are coming to kind of the Christmas period. Their form seems to be getting worse, if anything. The ease with which, because prior to this weekend, you'd have looked at the fixture list and thought, oh, Leicester Chelsea would be a great game. That's a that's a that's a kind of a, a proper top four battle. You know, you can see Leicester turning them over. I thought Leicester were atrocious. I thought they were as bad as they were against Arsenal, actually. They're being handled by teams in a way that they weren't previously. So I think it is a little bit more. I'm not saying it's a terminal situation, but it's um, it's concerning. I wonder whether mm. there's a bit of emotional fatigue at the club. There's been a lot of ups and downs Maybe. in the last few yeah. years, going back obviously to the death of the owner, but also those long seasons that have ended in not quite qualifying for the Champions League when they should have yeah, done. Yeah. The emo- actually, the positive emotion of an FA Cup win, when if you think about the way Leicester and Chelsea have gone since then, it's, it's kind of opposite directions. Obviously, they've had some key injuries to key players. They've got a good squad, so that's, that's less, of an, less of an excuse. 
but I think I just wonder whether they did. And also, <laughs> there's the the mental fatigue of having to play Thursday Europa League games, which is which is a huge thing, which probably Arsenal will end up profiting from this season. Yeah, I, I was going to ask that question actually, Tony. You know, they're at home to Legia Warsaw on Thursday, and they're third in what's a tight Europa League qualifying group. Would failing to get out of that group be a blessing in disguise? I don't know. I mean, they've got the quality to win the tournament. They should have. And in a season where it's looking like they're probably not going to be quite challenging in the league as, as they have done previously, you'd think that's something they could go and go and have a real crack at. But often with the Europa League, you often feel that teams kind of treat it as though, well, if we get to the, if we get to the quarterfinals, then we'll start to take it seriously. Until then, we'll just we'll see what happens and rotate. But I think talk, the morale around the club at the moment, the mood just doesn't seem great. I think going out of this would probably make things worse. Mm. Mood at Liverpool, pretty good. You'll have your chance in a second, uh, Tone, to have a gloat. <laughs> They're already qualified in the Champions League, Seb. Do you think they'll they'll rotate against Porto? You know, we saw Tyler Morton make his first uh, appearance at the weekend. Yeah, I, I, w- I would have thought so. It would kind of be a shame, though, because... They seem to have hit a rhythm. Like some of Liverpool's attacking play over the weekend was just, I mean, they, they did look like they were going to score every time they went forward in the second half. And part of that was Arsenal, Arsenal's insistence on sort of performing rondos in their own penalty box with players <laughs> that didn't have the technical ability to. Like, I, I don't understand that. Like, you need a, you need a, you know, a smarter mind than mine to to explain why when something goes wrong again and again and again, you keep doing it. It was just at Liverpool, at Anfield, like a. Very, very, very strange. But I, I, I wonder, and I, if you had you asked me five years ago, you thought, yeah, you dress this player and rest that. The more I learn about, or the more I, I try to learn about conditioning and form and match preparation, the more it seems that when players are playing well collectively, you keep them on the pitch. And that sort of part of the kind of the, the mentality of like, I don't know, periodization is to, is to ensure that players don't have the kind of their, the ups and downs, the the peaks and troughs that you would go through with a kind of you know sort of a, a European week. But I don't know. Like I, I, I think it might just be as simple as Mohamed Salah is playing so so well that I want to see him play again. Like his first touch, I know it wasn't hugely important in the, in the sort of the context of the game itself, but his first touch is to die for at the moment. Just the the way he pulls the ball out of the air, and he's just a he's in that really rare territory where he kind of transcends club loyalties and you know what's going on in the Premier League season you think guys this guy's just great to watch like just great to watch you'd watch him you pay to watch him juggle the ball in a park somewhere I think he's playing that well and he's just and you can see he's enjoying it there's no angst there's no anxiety within his game it's just a a player who has complete faith in his ability at the moment it's just a, a privilege to watch it and he just looks absolutely lethal with the ball at his feet so I hope I hope they just also like I feel like there's a one of the question marks against Liverpool for a long time has been the midfield. And Saturday night was one of the first times I've, I've, I've seen a properly convincing Thiago Alcantara performance for Liverpool. I thought, yeah, that's the player who's at Bayern Munich. And you just think, I think it might suit Liverpool just to keep this group together for, for, for the European week and not disrupt it too much. I don't know what Tony thinks. He's the, he's the Liverpool fan here. Yeah, what do you think then, Tom? I think he probably will rest some players. I totally see where Seb's coming from. And I think, I mean, Liverpool has a recent history of just smashing loads past Porto every time they play them. And it would, <laughs> uh, and it would seem a shame to, to end that run. I think there are obvious 
I mean, we just don't, Liverpool just don't have the strength in depth that Chelsea and Man City do. So dropping, leaving players out does mean your quality is dropping notably. And now, and again, there's a momentum thing is that, you know, we may, do we really want to lose the next two games in the Champions League? We'll still top the group. That's not a problem. But is that really a good thing? I don't think it is. I think we'll see changes. I, I definitely think we'll see Thiago play again. And actually, I think that the balance in midfield on Saturday with Fabinho, Thiago dropping a bit deeper, playmaking and, and the Ox, who actually I thought played really he well. He was terrific, um, wasn't he? he just, was, uh... just benefiting from running the team and just and, and inhabiting spaces yeah. and being that that energy that that maybe we lack in there occasionally, just that ability to get around that Wijnaldum used to, used to provide when he was there. So I suspect he might give, in areas where we do have a bit more depth, it wouldn't surprise me to see Van Dijk getting a rest. Again, Trent is playing so well. Do you do you, do you drop? Do you, do you give Nico Williams a game and just give Trent the night off? I don't know. It'll be it'll be somewhere in between. I would think Salah is currently, like Seb says, I mean, some of his first, also just the way defenders are, are dealing with him at the moment or not dealing with him, they are absolutely scared stiff of him. Yeah, which is, as a fan is brilliant to watch, and as a neutral, probably quite amusing. But he's one of those who just wants to play every game because he just wants to keep scoring. So. Wouldn't surprise me at all to see him start, but again, we might see a few forty-five minute outings and, and a few players being changed here and there. That's the beauty of the of the champ of Europe at the moment. You can make those substitutions and hopefully do it under a bit less pressure. Yeah, I, I'm interested to see how Alex Oxlade Chamberlain gets on again. I think is it three and a half years or something like that since he's completed ninety minutes in the Premier League. And here's a here's a player, and I'll throw this again to you, Tony, for May. You know, he's twenty-eight now, had a wretched couple of years. He's got 18 months left on his contract. Again, you're in Klopp's position. Do you, you know, give him enough leeway to try and prove himself worthy of another contract? I think it's been forced upon him by injuries in midfield. I, I, I personally think that Klopp probably felt that Oxlade-Chamberlain didn't quite fit the profile of what he wanted. The, the, the debate around Oxlade-Chamberlain through his entire career has been, why is he? What's his position? You know, Arsene Wenger played him in a lot of different roles. He himself apparently wants to be seen as a midfielder. And actually, if you think about the structure that Liverpool play, playing on the on the right side of that midfield three probably would suit him. But it hasn't really in the time that he's, apart from one run a couple of years ago, he hasn't really excelled when he's played there. Never really had a run in the team. Injuries have gone in the way. There have been noises recently, obviously, with his contract starting to run down about, you know, he wanting more football, wanting to play more, otherwise he'll look to leave. My instinct is that he has a chance in the next few weeks to really establish himself. I suspect he possibly won't. And I think when all the midfielders are fit and well, he's probably not starting. And I don't think he'll get a new contract. Right. I think we're all pretty much agreed that we've we've got our top three now. Who has the best chance of finishing fourth, Seb? Let's look at West Ham, already qualified in the Europa League. Again, probably would be well advised to play the reserves in Vienna this mm -hmm. week. Any warning signs in that narrow defeat by Wolves, who, lest we forget, have sort of stolen up to about sixth, I think? Yeah, it was a sloppiness to it. I don't think I'd class them as warning signs because coming off the international break, every now and again, you do have a few cobwebs. Players have been travelling, players are slightly out of step with where they were. So let's see what it was. But it was one of those, I think if you're a West Ham fan, you'd have been annoyed by that loss because it was avoidable. And... Yeah, there was just a, mentally, they weren't quite there. Bonner's injury is, 
let's see. It's a long-term one. That's potentially a problem. If they were to lose Antonio, I, I think this is always the question mark with, with West Ham. They're not the same team without Mikel Antonio, and Mikel Antonio does not have a good injury record. We're also coming into a run of games, which is going to be pretty difficult physically. So if his hamstring twangs in the next couple of weeks and he misses six weeks, whatever, that's a huge problem because where are your goals coming from? Also, probably more importantly, where is your pivot work coming from at the top of the formation? Because a lot of those players are playing really well, but they depend on Antonio to get the space to, for them to play well. I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's something they need to really address in January. They've, they've had some new investment. I mean, I don't. I know that won't sort of create a Roman Abramovich at Chelsea and, you know, stop the millennium situation, but they do need to deepen in a couple of those positions and centre forward is one of them. They've, they've tried so hard over the years to find a proper source of goals and Antonio wasn't bought to provide them. Yeah, he is the one that has eventually kind of rolled, uh, slid into that role. But yeah, you need to have cover because you can't, you can't, um, great player, but you can't trust his conditioning really. Mm. What about Spurs, Tony? You spoke about clarity in terms of coaching. I think we pretty much know what Conte is all about. He needs to sort out the balance of that team probably, but are there tangible signs very, very early? Are there tangible signs of his influence? Yes. I thought they were absolutely terrible in the first half yesterday. I mean, it was the fact it was only 1 0 at half time, and that only in the 44th minute was an absolute get out of jail card for, for, for Spurs because they were so bad. And they were different gravy in the second half. I think he, he, he went, apparently, he went, he went man for man off the ball, put pressure on Calvin Phillips, which they hadn't really done in the first half. Phillips just ran the game. But there was an energy and intensity, and that, that's, that's the first thing. I mean, I think I, I can't imagine. What the players heard at half time, but I, I expect it wasn't <laughs> expect it, it wasn't particularly friendly, and that's the, that's been the problem for for Spurs, hasn't it? There, there's been a there seems to have been a malaise around the club pretty much ever since Pochettino left. They just haven't really, you know. Obviously, the rumours about Harry Kane last two months: was he staying? Was he going? Does he want to be there? Is he fit? Is he what he was? You know, there's no point scoring a hundred goals for England in a calendar year if you're scoring one every six weeks for for, for the club. So their second half performance yesterday was 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 different gravy to the first half. They get the three points, which actually on the balance of play in the ninety minutes, I still don't think they quite deserve because Leeds were so so much better than them in the first half. But they got the three points. I suspect clarity won't be a problem. Knowing Conte as we do, I suspect quality could be a problem. He would want more quality than he obviously has there. Looking at that eleven that started yesterday. <sighs> maybe three or four that he'd be happy with long-term. Can't think many more than that. Mm. Do you agree with that, Seb? Yeah, I think that's just about fair. I, I think um, one of the issues he's going to have to navigate between now and whenever they reinvest is central midfield because he, I mean, what he said about Tangi and Domblay suggests that he doesn't really see him as one of a two. And I, I understand that. He's not really a, no, he's not a natural fit for that role. Giovanni Thelso cannot stay fit apart from when he goes off to international duty. Um, <laughs> so he's really left with nothing other than Hoiberg and Winks in the middle of midfield. Actually, I, I, it's worth praising Harry Winks. I, I thought he was awful in the first half, but then I thought he was very, very good in the second half. And um, one of the things I've always admired about Harry Winks is he's got, he's got courage to his football. He always wants the ball. He's had a bad couple of years, bad few, bad sort of downturn in his confidence and also he's suffered with injuries over the years. But Conte said that uh, he shows real personality in the second half with the ball. And I agree with that. I think he he did everything he could to try and change the game and uh, he was a real difference maker. But I think 
for now, on the basis that Spurs are not going to spend £300 million in January, the advantage of Conte is to change a few attitudes and to try and make some kind of C-plus players, B-minuses, B-plus. And it was interesting, for instance, to see see Winks. Yeah, I thought Hoiberg had quite a good game. I'm really happy to see Ryan Sessegnon on a Premier League pitch again because I, if you go back to when he was a teenager, I watched him a lot when he was sort of coming through at Fulham, but also for England's age group teams. He's a terrific player and a, a good guy as well. And there's a player there. And I think that's where I would be looking as a Spurs fan to see Conte's effect on that kind of footballer. Because the older guys, they are what they are, for better or worse. And their careers are set. Sessegnon still has a career ahead of him. I know it feels like he's been around for a very long time, but could you remember how we used to talk about him three or four years ago? Because mm-hmm. really, like, a, in the, he, we, we kind of talked about him as if he would be where Jaden Sancho is now. I know they're not the same players, but... He can still have this future, and I, I be, I, I think he really fits one of those Conte wingback roles. Has to stay healthy, of course. Has to get past Sergio Reguilón, but he's one to watch. So I, I think there's there are encouraging signs. It's it's very, I suppose it's very flimsy at the moment. You just take the three points as as they as they fall and don't complain about how they arrive. But yeah, there's there's reasons to be cheerful. Let's put it that way. Let's be political. <laughs> about it. The other thing about that is that they're seventh. Yeah. I think we all think they've had a terrible season. They're seventh. We all think Arsenal had a really start to, terrible start. Well, they did have a terrible start to the season, but if they'd won Anfield on Saturday, which obviously they came nowhere near doing, but if they had, they'd have gone above Liverpool into the top four. Like the, the, this, the top three will end up being a way clear, I think. But that battle for fourth place is so unbelievably open. It's like a championship playoff race. It's like a team wins a couple of games in a row and suddenly they're right in the midst of it. I do think there were worrying signs for West Ham with that Wolves defeat. One, one we should be we should give Wolves a bit more credit. They've actually been really yeah. good this season. They didn't deserve the defeat they had at the start of the season. And Bruno Larges quietly had a bit of a created a bit of a bit of, bit of momentum there. They're playing better football, slightly more aggressive than they were under Nuno, and they're a difficult team to play. But I do think West Ham are really really thin on the ground beyond the first eleven, and I think. Uh, Dawson is a is a really likable Premier League journeyman, but he's he's, he's not Ogbonna, and that's one injury, and they already look like they're struggling a bit. Antonio goes, and also it's just they play the same team every week. You know, th- there's a lot to be said for momentum in that score, but at some point, particularly in the next few weeks, where they're just games coming thick and fast, do worry for them a bit. Doesn't change the job David Moyes has done though, which is I maintain is absolutely incredible. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, you mentioned the, the sort of fundamental attraction of, of watching young players develop and come through, Seb. I just want to go back to the Champions League in, in a sense. We've you've got Barcelona now under Xavi. Two 17-year-olds in all three teenagers in that win over Espanyol. That's probably a signal of intent. And they've got a key game against Benfica on Tuesday. Real Madrid, probably you don't expect lightning to strike twice against uh, Sheriff. I want to look at the broader issue, if I could. That's why I mentioned Spain's top two. Are we still judging those clubs on past reputation? Yeah, because it's really hard not to. I think whatever the, the peaks and troughs that Real Madrid and Barcelona go through, they still have a fantastic advantage, a very literal advantage over the rest of the teams in their division. Barcelona's spending limits aside. And also... Whenever you have Barcelona, for instance, whenever you have a team which still includes Piquet and Sergio Busquets and Jordi Alba and now Daniel Vaz and it's being managed by Xavi, 
you're not going to detach yourself from your past associations. And also Barcelona are making no attempt to do that because Barcelona is a club which is about ideology. Barcelona is tethered to a very, very specific way of playing the game. And within that context, you it's very, very difficult to forge any kind of new identity or, or kind of separate yourself from your own past. So I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I also, I, I, I think Real Madrid stack up quite favorably with maybe not their European Cup winning teams, but some of the teams in the past, they're a bit more entertaining than they were during their last championship winning side. Barcelona, I maintain Barcelona, Barcelona have plenty of reason for optimism. All kinds of financial issues notwithstanding and so they're, they're in the middle of a kind of a, a massive stadium and local area reconstruction program which is going to cost a further 1.5 billion euros or something but if you look at the playing staff and if you look at the group of players that are coming through so not beyond Ansu Fati, Pedri, Gavi players like um, Alejandro Balde oh what a good player he's potentially going to be or Nico who I, I think could probably at some point will probably be inherit Sergio Busquets's position I think if Xavi gets it right it's not a golden generation, but it's not that far off. And they could very, very quickly capture local enthusiasm, which is incredibly important to have the kind of the faith and goodwill of the, of the socios of the club. But you could be playing a brand of football which is much more acceptable locally and germinates all the kind of stuff which has been gently dissipating under uh, Bartemi's presidency or did before he left. So I, I think it's a good job to get. And I think they're in quite a good position with the enormous scary debt <laughs> yeah, I mean, when it comes to those two clubs, the enormous scary that seems to be almost uh, almost uh, an evergreen thing that they just continue to ignore. It's like the equivalent of a student loan in the UK. They just say, well, let's just, let's just carry on and not worry about that for now. On the pitch, it's really interesting to compare it to what Seb said earlier about United, not wanting to be the next man in, but wanting to be the next next man in. You'd have said that about Xavi. A lot of people would have said that about Xavi. And this is a guy who... There's obviously huge emotional tie to the club, but he's also not stupid. He will have done his due diligence. <laughs> and he had a, you know, we, we did some content with him not, not long ago. He was perfectly happy in Qatar. Perfectly happy. Now, whether whether you agree with him being there or not, or whether that does any good for his, for his kind of uh, reputation, who knows? But he was perfectly happy there and, you know, enjoying becoming a coach and learning as a coach and developing away from the public eye. Now, he could have easily done that for one more year, two more years, three more years. But um, I do think when you look at some of those players coming through, Seb's made that point. I suspect he's looked at it and thought it and thought, actually, I'm Xavi, so I've got a bit more time than any other coach would have because of who I am and what I've done at the club. Give me, give me 18 months, two years with this lot and I could do something. So it'd be really interesting to see how they develop financial issues notwithstanding. Well, those financial issues, I suppose, and that's why I probably want to sort of pull pull all this together now. We began by talking about Manchester United, which is you know essentially a business which happens to be in football. You've got the new Premier League uh, North American TV deal, two billion pounds. Do you think that increases the likelihood of clubs outside the Premier League, i.e., you know, essentially the, the top two we've spoken about in Spain and and you know, maybe some in Germany and also in Syria. Ah, do you think there's going to be another attempt to, to form a, a, a Super League? Well, I mean, so far as I know, like the, the last attempt is still kind of rumbling on in the background. I'm so confused by that. I like every every press release I read from Barcelona, Juventus and Real Madrid confuses me more. I, I, I have no idea what they're arguing with UEFA about anymore. But there is still an appetite for it. And yeah, because the... The pre- this new North American TV deal 
it, it takes the Premier League's advantage and it doesn't quite double it, but it, it becomes, it's becoming very, very significant. I don't think the charge towards Super League will ever come from inside Germany. I think not because everybody's so wedded to 50 plus one, because there are some dissenting voices about that. I think more that the, the attitude is, it's amazing how often you hear people talking about the Premier League as kind of just a horse that's disappeared over the horizon already. It's not even a kind of, it doesn't seem to be in the kind of conversation about how you haul back that, that advantage. But uh, Andrea Nelly has always come up with new ideas, isn't he? <laughs> Loves a plot. Um, and I dare say Florentino Perez isn't shy of coming up with new initiatives either. And Joanne Laporta, much the same. Barcelona are in need of a financial solution long term. And these clubs will not accept being inferiors to the Premier League. They won't just tolerate it. They won't, you know, they won't um, accept their their place as second second class citizens in European football because it's just not in the nature of football clubs. There's too much ego there. So of course it will. And it's Mike, you know, you know as well as I do, this never goes away. Hopcraft was talking about this in the 60s and it, it never goes away and it will always be there. Sometimes it's less under the surface than, than other times, but it will always be part of the discussion and always be a threat somewhere. If you need any enduring proof of the kind of the power that, that comes with particularly Barcelona and Real Madrid, so they managed to be have the, the, the English clubs in such thrall to them, they got them to convince them that the Super League yeah. was a good idea in the first place. Yeah. When, as Seb says, you know, we were, you know, the Premier League, the rights that we sell, the amount of money coming into the Premier League compared to other leagues is so huge that it would have taken only five minutes of reasoned thought to think we don't need to be a part of this. But mm. such is the reputation and, and the power. Just look at the website, out. Tony. Look at the website they made and the logos. Like, I, I, like, so I, you, you know, I, I, I'm not leaving the Premier League for that. Like, <laughs> <you know>. <laughs> <laughs> the Letraset League. Um, <laughs> yeah, let, I suppose like, I'll, I'll pull things together, I suppose. No, the sympathy for Oli Gunnar Solskjaer was genuine and heartfelt, but it did expose another dimension to the problem in modern football. Tradition is simply another product to be monetized. The fans' care and their formative passions are being exploited. But this is what the Super League will look like. Glossy and over-promoted, but empty and glib. A closed shop with captive customers. Now, the idea appeals to businessmen like the Glazers. They're a blight on the game. And I fear, in the widest sense, that the worst is yet to come. Do you agree with me? Please let me know. But in the meantime, thanks to Seb and Tony for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.